Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon community. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Kova. I'm Kikita Carey. And today we're here to talk some more about deserts in the last of our Interesting Environments series. We kind of touched about the basics of deserts, which aren't common in Rokugan last, last episode. So here we'll try and talk about a little bit more about deserts, just to give you ideas of why you should go to one or yeah. what, what you might find one as adventurer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we do have a bit of news that's happening. The Legend of the Five Rings RPG books are being re-released by Edge Studio. I think we've talked about the big bundle that you can get, but they're still they're available individually. So if only you didn't grab the first time around, they're they're now being reissued, reprinted. Yeah, so you can get them on paper. So that's a good thing. I think a lot of people have been wanting and weren't able to get various bo- of the books in print. So a new opportunity is 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 good. <laughs> yep. The other thing we have is the uh, Great Clans of Rokugan novella release, part one. That is coming out this week, or it should be coming out this week. Uh, that has, I believe, uh, Crane, Phoenix, Scorpion, and Unicorn? Yeah. Does that sound right? Uh, it sounds... About right, yeah. This, for those of you who don't know, um, these are the novellas that were printed individually before, and this is a bunch of them all in one volume, and including the new Crane one. Yeah, yeah. So that's not been seen before. Uh, I don't think you get the law stuff that you got in the first set of novel novellas, which is a bit sad, but probably not. I hope they eventually come out because they were cool. But that's that's the news, so you can see if you can pick that up and and you know tell us what you think of them when you get through them. <laughs> but we want to talk about deserts some more. So the first thing we talked about natural animals and natural creatures that you might find in a desert last time, whether it was in particular the Gobi Desert, because that's kind of what we tried to focus on as the one that seems most similar to the desert in Unicorn Lands, the high high step part of Unicorn Lands that could be considered a desert as it moves into what in L5R we call the burning sand. So we talked a little bit about why certain deserts might be there and why the geologist in me doesn't like the Rokugani map, but that's okay. We make it work one way or another. We're good at making excuses. However, Rokugan is, is actually made by the Kami, and um, so who cares about geology anyway? Apparently. Pa- apparently not the Kami. Apparently they don't care at all. Yeah. Right. However, we do want to... T- in um, your players' encounters in the desert, they probably want to do more than fighting bears, as bears might be really dangerous, but... We have bears at home. You know, <laughs> we have bears at home. <laughs> so we wanted to talk a little bit about um, creatures that have shown up in 
L5R fiction, L5R related stuff as monsters or supernatural creatures of the desert that your people might uh, encounter. Now, I need to do a big qualification on this to be clear. In L5R fictions and materials, uh, including in New 5R, the novella Into the Burning Sands, the focus has been on Middle Eastern supernatural creatures and spirits, which are not at all like, similar, related to, or in any way part of Japanese or even Japanese-Chinese East Asian mythology. They are not. If you go and look at many of the creatures that are found in Middle Eastern folklore, which are the the ones that show up in these books because Middle East is a desert, I guess, they are strongly based on Islamic tradition, which is obviously very different. Yeah, or, or I mean, I'm not quite sure whether they're based on it or whether just the Islamic tradition kind of permeates. It very much permeates that. And and often the, they are there in the same way that angels and demons and talking serpents show up in Christianity. You know, they are there for moral lessons and divine implications. If, if that makes sense. So this is very different from traditional uh, Chinese, Japanese, or Mongolian folklore. And if we yank these into Rokugan, which L5R does, then we have to understand that we're talking about a very different mythology. And you kind of have to rethink them. You can't go to the sources and say how this is viewed in the mindset of this, uh, of the people of Rokugan, because it, it is very foreign to it, if that makes sense. So it, it, it's a little complicated. It makes a little, you just have to be really careful and, and talk about it. Talk about it some at your table, especially if you have people who, who follow the religion of Islam. Potentially, I'm not saying all of these are active of of current modern Islam, but it's more just understanding that these things are different, and you know it's worth a, a discussion. That's all. Just just, just talking about it. However, we are not tapping these creatures because they are in Mongolian folklore or because they are in Islamic folklore. We are tapping these creatures because we have seen them show up in past L5R works, including in 5th edition, and so it's worth mentioning. Absolutely. So a lot of these things would make more sense thematically if you're going to the Camerist, I never quite know how to pronounce that, the, the Camerist Caliphate, kind of the area. And that's where, that's where we've shown, shown them. They're not going to be in the, in the more Mongolian part of Rokugan. So we're kind of tapping them. You could have them be stray, you know, get out of the, the cameras. Which has happened. Yeah. Yes. Uh, if you want to draw that theme in, hopefully there will be a, um, 
unicorn clan book, kind of like Richard the Wilds' dragon, that might get into the Burning Sands aspect of the world. I know that the dragon one supposedly has a fair bit about the Abonjan, which are to the north of Rokugan. So, yeah, there's a possibility. But we're going to talk about them anyway, and then you can make your decisions about how you want to uh, use these beings, hopefully in a uh, sensitive and intelligent way. Okay. The first one that shows up in a lot of these desert campaigns, and it has actually shown up in L5R in the main body of the continent, are, are jinn. They are supernatural creatures or beings, I should say, from Islamic mythology, like the rest of these generally are. There are many, many types of depictions of them. So to say, far too many to say, this is what a, a jinn is. <laughs> exactly. So we'll just try and talk around it a little bit. At core, they are beings of power, magical power, as we would call it that are considered neither innately evil nor innately good, but can do great good or evil based on how they are essentially guided, uh, whether they you know, are gu guided by divine forces, by, by God, or by satanic or evil forces. So that's kind of where you get through many, many steps. <laughs> to Aladdin and the jinn or genies from from that uh, set of storytelling. They are power. <laughs> well, I mean, one, one way of looking at it is that in Rokugan, and honestly, if you look at Japanese mythology, the spirits that live in the various, in the elements and in the trees and the rocks, they don't deal with human concepts of morality, right? That's not what they do. Yeah. And so we often talk about, you know, the, the kami that the Shugenja deal with. They don't think like humans. They don't deal with human morality. They're different. The jinn and the ifrit do. They are on the same. They, they kind of have bought into one way or the other the prevailing, in this case, Islamic morality. So there's good and there's evil. There is, there's God and there is Satan. And you're on that axis somewhere and you can, you can make moral choices. And so Ifrit and, and Jin can make moral choices in a way that the Kami in Rokugan kind of don't. That's certainly one way of, of looking at it. Right. But that said, they do not have a, an innate moral center. No, just like people don't. <laughs> well, that's that's debatable. Well, well yeah, yeah. I mean, but 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 <laughs> yeah, just as we, we we call there's a conscience. They don't have a conscience. But yeah, well, it's not 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 all people do. Uh, you want to get it up? But yeah, people people make moral choices. They can be good. They can be evil. And Gina like that only like turned up to eleven because they're just so incredibly powerful. Right. So they won't necessarily. They will go a totally random way without an external force pushing on them. Does that make sense generally? At least as I understand it. They are not innately one or the other. And they are not human. So they end up being guided by humans in many ways. But in the into the burning sands, 
novella, which is the unicorn novella that's I think might be coming out as part of this Great Clans of Rokugan compendium. There is a gin. He is definitely flavored quite a bit by the Disney adaptation or the Disney depiction of a, a, a found in Aladdin or the story of Aladdin. He is blue. He is a giant blue being um, that floats in the air uh, and looks like a man, at least from the waist up, bound or enslaved by powerful sorcery, but is eager to be released from or hedged out of their bounds if they can find a way to do so. So because they are powerful and because they can be controlled or influenced by humans, these being, this Aladdin-like being, wants to be free, wants to wants to go out and do their own own thing, but they are, are captive and, and bound enslaved so that depiction in burning into the burning sands is very much flavored by that disney depiction yeah it's not like it doesn't come from the original source material but yeah this it's it's also been you know we've taken those stories and we've done our own spin on them and and so on and so on yeah there's also been another djinn depicted in recent Elfavar fiction, and that's in the fiction Outsiders. And in that one, a djinn ends up in a Rokugani temple, which, now the, the kami from that temple was water-based, this is fire-based, and that's partly what's causing the problem, because it's not accepting the offerings that people are giving to the water-based kami, and it was all very strange. It was pretty much invisible, and it was acting up, and it was depicted as alien and foreign. But whether that is, you know, it should not be here, or it's not used to being here, doesn't know the rules, so it's kicking stuff over because it doesn't understand what's going on, kind of hard to tell, and it wasn't really followed up on so it seems that at least some sorts of jinn can effectively fit into a kami shaped hole if you see what i mean they can they at least some of them can occupy the same spaces but exactly what that means has never really been followed up on right so to a rokugani basically i would say that um they would see a jinn as a elemental kami that can be made visibly manifest before them and that has a lot more human type personality than regular kami. So most kami are very alien, but a jinn can communicate with you better with degrees of ability to communicate based on probably their power level, their age, their the amount that they have interacted with humans in in the past. The other kami do not recognize it or understand it very well, but it doesn't understand them either. So they're all kind of jostling and fighting, fighting each other, trying to figure out what's going on. Now, in the folklore, 
There are two terms used. Gin can kind of be considered all of them. It's the generic, but it's also used more for the ones that are more on the good side, more have made the choice, you know, to be on the side of good. And this is in a kind of said monotheistic good versus evil axis. And then the Ifrit are beings that are kind of choosing to be on the evil side through their either past experience or, or they've made that, that choice. They're, they're on the evil side. So, and gin tend to be focused on air and free on fire, but that's not required. And that hasn't been raised in, in L5R particularly. No, no. So we've, I mean, in New Father, we've seen like two of them thus far. So what the rest of them are like, we have no idea. Right. They could be all elements. Yeah, yeah. If, 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 if and when they come off in a new supplement, we'll, we'll be right on that. Don't you worry. <laughs> yep. So moving on to slightly easier creatures, because these are mostly just beasties. Mm-hmm. Other classic desert mythological creatures, again, mostly Middle Eastern. But you have the rock ROC, which is a giant bird of prey large enough to carry an elephant off in its claws, which um, that must take a lot of feeding when you think about it. (laughs) You can make smaller ones. You can make ones that just just can lift off a a horse and rider comfortably. Tiny, tiny ones that can only lift a horse and rider. But they can get very, very big. That's a good challenge for your party. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think they're, they're only ever just beasties. They're just... Big beasties that, that that can get in your way and be annoying, or, or occasionally have interesting things in their nest that you need to go deal with, while uh, not getting the wrath of Mama Bird off on your head. So another one that comes up that you you see is a sphinx, which is a monster with the body of a, a lion and the head and chest of a human and in- eagle's wings. So this shows up. In deep old lore from the story of Ichiban, but they are usually depicted as a guardian spirit, uh, looking over a tomb or looking over a, a prison or any, any place else that, that they've been set to, to watch for a long time. Now, I would say that with Sphinx, you are, you know, deep in Egyptian territory, which has not been depicted in fifth edition as being part of the uh, whole tradition. It used to be in old 5R, the Sempet Empire was just around and it was ancient Egypt and you could go visit it. And when the scorpion got chucked out of rock again the second time, because it's a thing that happens to a lot, they ended up uh, in the Sempet Empire. In New 5R, the Sempet Empire used to exist a long time ago, and the it's Rempet now is the area that used to be this, or something like that. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility that in ancient, ancient, ancient places where role-playing characters often seem to need to go to, there might be a sphinx guarding a very ancient thing, which is another thing that role players very often have to deal with. So they wouldn't just be wandering around like a rock, say, but they might be there as a specific obstacle on a specific quest. 
Right. So they would not be part of or integrated in or even be more than just ancient stories in the modern Kamarist empire. Because the Kamarist caliphate is basically built on the ashes of the Renpet of the Egyptian-like empire that existed before. So if a sphinx shows up, it is something remnant from a much older age. And they haven't shown up for, uh, you know, since this redesign of the um, whole, um, how this burning sand society works. But as you said, there could be ancient things out there and it could be guarded by a sphinx. That's, that's fine. Just don't have them wandering around as like. No, that would be a bit weird. Yeah. Another common creature that shows up in Middle Eastern mythology are ghouls. These are undead creatures, possibly undead jinn, who specifically prey on human flesh. So they're actually very similar to the zombie movie type zombies. Um, and if, if, if you listen to about five minutes of people discussing zombie mythology, you'll learn that zombie movie zombies aren't like actual zombies from actual mythology and, and so on. Ghouls are like this. They are dead. They are still moving around despite being dead, which is very rude. And they want to eat people, right? That's, that's a ghoul. They are, you, you get a lot of them, or at least the, the ones I've heard, they, they're kind of in hidden places, in abandoned graveyards, in caverns, dark, dingy areas. And they leap out at you and make your life miserable and try and eat you. There's a lot of different approaches to ghouls, too. Um, in this kind of folklore, there's the ghouls. I have been raised by a necromancer and a kind of mindless. But ghouls generally tend to be a bit more intelligent. They are fleshed. They are not just bones. And they are kind of independent beings. And they will go and you know hide in dark places and, and come, come eat, your, eat your flesh. As opposed to being just minions usually not not always however in undead in general are are perfectly proper to have in your desert campaign they can be risen by evil sorcery they could be risen by maho um they can be risen by such things in the ancient past and then are just stuck in the desert for centuries and centuries and centuries and you stumble upon them because deserts are potentially big and you're trying to get to a place that has undead in it and they preserve the deserts preserve things and so that's an image that comes up quite a lot as well and if you're talking about links to rock again Iuchiban rather famously found a method of cheating death by going into the deep desert, finding some ancient sorcery. In Old 5R, this was hiding his heart, if I remember right. But it might be something different these days. But the, you know, he went off into the, into the far foreign lands and found a foreign method of cheating death. So it is possible you may, your adventurers may have to go head off that way and find out what he did. So to undo it. So there's a, there's a potential link there. Now, all of these things, as we kind of said before, are from Middle Eastern desert folklore. 
that showed up. If you are interested in actual Mongolian tradition, their their folk tradition is is uh, much smaller and not so monster infused um, as as Japanese tradition. Yeah. Or Middle Eastern <laughs> tradition, the you know of course both traditions have the kind of stories of you know the uh, wise uh, housewife and the fox, or you know humans and talking animals kind yeah, of yeah animal spirits that sort of thing uh, getting the better of each other through through their wits and uh, so on that. Those stories are the ones that I could find most commonly in Mongolian folklore. So, um, there are, uh, religious aspects that they've expressed for the Ujik culture, but I don't want to go too deeply into what the Ujik believe beyond what we've already talked about, because I'm hoping that comes out in a future book because we really have not gotten a whole whole lot of that we've gotten a little bit but not a whole lot so i don't want to talk about that but it, it does sound like you'd be more dealing with animal spirits if you're getting into the supernatural so and and there's a fair amount of information on that already so you'd be kind of reskinning them a little bit right you could certainly have a mongolian bear a desert bear or a snow leopard or any of the snow, the animals that we talked about that were out there in the, in the steppes, in the, in the kind of desert environment that we had talked about. You could certainly make spirit versions of any of those. And that is very appropriate to uh, the setting and, and this Mongolian aspect of it. So definitely suggest that. So, if your people are heading off into the deserts, we have some common imagery that you will see a lot. Or you can use to make things more interesting. Spice it up. These these are things you can you can bring out to give give that, that flavour. And I think one of the more iconic ones is just that the dust storm, that wall of dust and or sand just coming towards you and then you know, blanking out everything. So the entire world, you know, from earth to sky is nothing but a pale brown unbroken void. And you can't tell which way you're going or where to go or anything at all. <laughs> that's, you know, that's definitely iconic and, and something to pour on your players. Another one, you know, the desert is a great place to show the underlying geology of the land because it's all covered with stuff. Um, so you could have an area of land where it's just sharp ridges, uh, row on row of a weathered brown stone coming out of the earth uh, at an angle, like it was the, the ribs of a man coming out of the earth. If you were walking through a giant rib cage, it could be like that. So. You also get those desert badlands, the the mountains of sandstones, you know, reds and whites and yellows, like sandcastles and arches where the wind has carved them into all sorts of interesting shapes, the canyons that go back on each other and the connections between these mesas just seeming sometimes to be impossible and just carved by some impossible hand, like some giant made it all. Uh, another image 
remembering that uh, this isn't all sand dunes. As actually, I'm in these images, I'm trying to avoid sand dunes because that is different kind of desert anyway. <laughs> is uh, a long series of scrublands with uh, just a gray and brown earth, and then lots and lots of thorny, low to the ground plants with like beautiful white flowers on them or beautiful colored flowers that are blooming on them after after a uh, light rain so you can just see all these thorny plants with these these white flowers on them it is one of the the more interesting things i've seen in many nature documentaries is what happens to these apparently barren deserts when it does rain and the day after it's like you're suddenly in a meadow because there's greenery everywhere and there's flowers everywhere and there's insects everywhere and there are frogs in these little ponds that have that are, that have shown up, and suddenly there are frogs in these ponds, and it seems like a completely different place. And then it all goes away again. And then it all goes away again, really, really quickly. Yeah. Another very evocative image is an ancient well sheltered in a small dry gorge in a shadowed cleft, so the sun can't get to it with just just a few plants growing around it signaling that there's water there it's important to kind of remember that especially in an inhabited desert like the gobi would be not something as big as i don't know the sahara you're going to have a lot more wells that have water in them than just like open pool oases even though that's the the image that we're used to <laughs> So, so you're going to have these these little wells, and that would be your your wet spot. There would be a well, so people can actually use that and not have it all evaporated. And it's going to be in sheltered places. It's going to be low places, um, hidden hidden places is much more likely to be your sources of water than you know an open pool on the surface. Despite what your players might see if they're looking at mirages, <laughs> um, another image I think that is kind of cool that you can have in your in your fantasy desert is having a place where there are salt crystals on the surface um, because you have areas where you know salt is exposed through the geology or whatever and you get these rains and then it dries and the salt recrystallizes and you just get crystals spread across the surface like snow but it's not snow, it's, it's salt, and it can be quite, quite beautiful and um, quite, quite strange to people who don't live there. So I like that image. They can be very deadly environments because the glare of the sun gets magnified by the white crystals. And very often, and, and the heat can get reflected as well, and very often there is almost no water. They, they can be, like, there are these salt flats, don't go over the salt flats, you'll die. But then, of course, the player, the player characters are saying, no, 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 we need to go because that's, that's where we need to go because we're adventurers. We don't go to nice places for some reason. <laughs> Another image we're going to leave you with is that of dried trees growing out of pebble-covered ground. These trees that look like dead and dry and, and withered, but they still have a little bit of life in them just waiting for those rains. No grass cover, just pebbles nearby. Yeah, a ghost forest, or it looks like a ghost forest. You can just have these areas of stunted 
stunted trees, but all, all across them. So we tried to give you some that aren't the typical, uh, sand dunes and cactuses. Uh, hopefully you can, you can, uh, make something out of, out of that to, um, inspire your, your players and, and give them an interesting place to, uh, to look at, uh, while you're, while you're describing your desert environment. The last thing we wanted to offer was some story hooks or, or plot hooks, adventure seeds, if you will. How do you get your players into the desert, however, is the big uh, question, because smart people don't go there. No. Uh, why would you dump your people in this out-of-the-way corner of the empire or potentially outside the empire? So I wanted to give you some ideas for how you could put your people in this kind of environment in case you wanted to. You could go through our um, Rokugani world tour and use all of our different interesting environments in our series to have have reasons to um, put your, your players in everything. So why not desert? So here's some reasons that um, I've either used before in past campaigns because or been in campaigns that have done this, or you could use that I haven't tried out, but sounds good. The first and simplest one is put a milder version of the desert into northern unicorn lands. Um, this is kind of there anyway, but you just send your players on a mission to northern unicorn lands for reasons, and, and they find that it's desert there. Um, horses are breed breeding animals, herding animals, and the Ujik are a herding culture, and this is just what, what it is. Um, so that's one way. Another way is to put an aggressive enemy on their tail, someone they can't just fight, um, although this is quite difficult because player characters don't understand the concept of an enemy they can't fight, I find. <laughs> but if they are pursued by such an enemy, they can be pushed out into the deserts, off to the west, and be blocking their way back on the assumption that they will never survive the harshness of the desert. Mwahaha, we're so evil. They certainly won't come back even stronger than before and defeat us. No, that won't happen. <laughs> and thus the player characters have to deal with desert survival and trying to work out how they're going to get back. Right. It's a way to be forced out. And, uh, you know, sometimes that happens. Especially if you talk it through ahead of time, it's like, no, sorry, this is going to kill you unless you run. So run. Uh, another option to get your PCs out there is to have the PCs accompany or be, if they happen to be a gifted artisan, uh, someone who does their services in person. Uh, and those services have been temporarily sold to a foreign court, like the Caliph in Alzuero, a famous painter, a famous uh, musician, a famous uh, dancer, or even, if you want, a famous beauty who the unicorn have temporarily traded the services of to do a trade negotiation the the one that we did in our campaign for for what it's worth is we had a pc in the party who was a famous painter the unicorn sold one of the paintings 
to someone in the Burning Sands. And that person then said, ah, I want this person to come and paint a picture for me. A picture of me. <laughs> a picture. <laughs> and therefore, the unicorn, in order to continue the trade relationship, then say, oh, okay, I will bring this artist out to you to paint for you for a month as a as a trade good. So that's a way to get a party out there if they are accompanying or um, are a famous, uh, famous person. Another possibility, and this ties into an upcoming Legend of Five Rings novel, To Chart the Clouds, which I happen to like a lot. This is a cartography expedition to define the border of the edge of the empire for a map. So that would probably be with the Mia, and which would be a good reason to get a whole bunch of different people in different clans together, because it's all under the imperial kind of authority. And so you've got to travel up the western border of the empire. And as we know, beyond the western border of the empire, there's lots of desert. And so you've got to chart it and make sure you know what's there, and which means spending time there. Mm-hmm. And who knows what might happen. Right. Another option is that your PCs can be caught up in some sort of magical effect that causes them to be transported into the desert, potentially into the deep desert, by some supernatural means. So this could be a, you know, spell backlash kind of effect, if you wish. It could be, hi, your PCs have gotten caught in a different realm, uh, like Chukshudo, um, temporarily and are sauntering around in that realm. But when they come out, they realize they came out in the wrong place, not in the place they went in. And it's now in the middle of the desert. And now they have to deal with that. What do we do? Now they have to deal with that. Yeah. They could also be sent in the desert in the same way, but rather more mundane means. If someone, if they're annoying someone powerful, they can just be kind of kidnapped and then carried off into the desert to get rid of them. Which, you know, for, for various reasons, like we, you know, we can't personally be seen to kill them or we don't want to get our hands that dirty. Or if you've got a Shugenja in the party, they may have spiritual resources. So you want to get them away from those. And it can, can all be kind of like, you, know, we can't have them die in rock again. So you want them to die outside. Yeah. You know, it may be as simple as that way. No one can communicate with their spirits. So we're going to kidnap you and going to send you off into the desert. Um, other, uh, other fun things is like, ah, we have a cunning plan to find out who's smuggling the bad things. So we're going to hide ourselves in, in the cargo and you discover that, uh, either you got rumbled and your cargo is now sent to the desert or is going to be sent there anyway. And you suddenly regret your life choices and now you have to get back. Right. A thing you can do is have your NPCs be intelligent enough to be aware that Shiginja are always like, even though it can't be used as testimony, are um, looking for, can commune with the spirits of the dead and uh, therefore f- you know, find out who killed them. And if you have a, a Kitsu in your party or someone who does this on a regular basis to solve all your mysteries by you know, communing with the dead person. You can always turn that back on them and have them 
kidnapped and taken outside of the empire to be killed because, you know, then no one could communicate with the, their, their spirits. Uh, having your NPCs learn about the PCs bad habits is always a fun thing to do to turn on, on the PCs and make them stretch a little bit. Another thing is to make your MP, your PCs part of a diplomatic mission. Um, between the unicorn, if your PCs are unicorn or related to unicorn, or potentially with another clan and a desert people, maybe for some reason your clan Daimyo wants to start up a relationship with the Ujik who have found a new source of a precious gemstone that they want more of or a, a valuable metal or, or something else that, that your um, clan wants. Like I could see the crane wanting to get around the unicorn if they find a, a valuable source of a blue pigment, like they find cobalt or lapis or something like that. And they don't want their blue pigment to all have to come through the unicorn clan markups. So a, a crane might want to send a quiet side expedition to kind of sneak around the unicorn markups and set up their own relationship with the, uh, you know, Ujik tribal leader who has access to this newfound lapis mine. Their, their clan is trying to make their own um, trade mission. This would be even more so for a clan like the Lion, who want to get something from those people that are at war with the Unicorns. So Unicorn have a kind of monopoly on trade with the Burning Sands, and other clans might want to get around it, and you could be involved. Yeah, there's all sorts of potential diplomatic missions that you could go on. I do find myself wondering if there are any desert and desert-like areas around about the Ivory Kingdoms as well, because that's we, we'll be talking like north and west, but it's also possibly south and west. So maybe you know the Crab Clan have got stuff to do, or the Mantis, and that could be you know you could get yourself involved in desert shenanigans down that way. Either way, even if it is all to the north and west. There's so many ways, there's so many potential diplomatic missions that you could go on and be sent off there. So once you are in your desert, once we've got you there, what might you have to deal with? The main and obvious plot hook is just survival, dealing with the shortages of water and food and shade, just getting through the day when it, the, the sun is doing its very best to kill you. And dealing with the nighttime, which is very, very cold, potentially. Easier if you are with a group, especially a group who knows what they're doing. But what happens if you suddenly get separated? What happens if you're there on your own? You have to deal with unfamiliar animals, some of which has got poison. You got to work out what water sources are safe and which ones aren't. There's a whole bunch of plots going on there. Right. And that's the basic desert game. But you can have more uh, intricate plots uh, in there. You could be traveling with a nomadic people, and you can find that their water sources are being poisoned, which is the worst, worst thing you could do to your enemies in in the desert. That's, that's terrible. So 
trying to find who is poisoning these water sources and how how this can be stopped before the people die as a, as a big adventure. You could have a merchant who's been helping the player characters. They report seeing people in the desert at night, just standing, watching the camp, watching court, but they don't approach. When anyone goes there, nobody there. So they're, they're asking the player characters to investigate. So... Perhaps those these are spirits that are ghosts of another caravan of merchants. Their bodies are lost beneath the sands, and they're haunting the merchant in a plea to return their bones to their home, and and perhaps they are from Rockigan in the first place. So, you know, please find our bones and return us to Rockigan so they may find rest. The difficulty, okay, once you've found them, that could be a difficulty in itself. But if you are to take the bodies themselves, well, you're not going to be able to take them and the merchant's cargo. Maybe you're going to have to leave some of it behind, and I don't think the merchant's going to be happy about that. There isn't any wood to burn pyres to cremate them. So that will put the PCs in a bit of a dilemma, and they've got to make some decisions. How are they going to put these lost spirits to rest? Right. It's not like that trip goes, is frequent, right? <laughs> they, you know, it's not like you can say, oh, I'll come back next week. Another story could be giant rocks are attacking a remote unicorn city and the forces within the city are barely able to drive back the attacks. Uh, the PCs join in the fight, uh, trying to fend off these rocks. But when they investigate, trying to find a reason for the attacks, they find that a samurai in the city has found a huge jewel. And that jewel is actually the rock's egg. And they are attacking the city because they want their egg back. Yep. Don't upset Mama Bird. Don't upset Mama Bird. Maybe a blood speaker has cursed one of the player characters and they aren't going to remove the curse unless the PCs furnish an item from the deep desert from an ancient ruin or some such. And they want that item to cement or increase their power. So they're sending the player characters out and they will not remove the curse until they get the item. So the player characters have to decide, are they playing along? What are they going to do? And uh, probably their first step is go get the item. That involves going right into the desert. Um, another potential plot could be a, a powerful immortal being like, like Yuchiban has Rokugan under a, a reign of terror and nobody can, can kill them. They, they are immortal as far as anybody can tell. And then the PCs learn that this, this being that has, is terrorizing the empire can't die until their heart is found. And their heart has been removed and is being stored in a, a stone jar in the burning sands. And so the PCs must try to go find the heart of this being and bring this reign of terror to an end. So big full campaign there. Yeah. So that's uh, a set of plot hooks and campaign hooks for your games. If you want to integrate deserts and desert adventures into your games, we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear your ideas of how you would integrate this sort of thing into your games. How would you bring them out and what kind of things would you have your characters be doing? Please do let us know. We did want to give a call out to our sister 
podcast, uh, Fortune and Strife, which is an affiliated actual play podcast, and they are doing much stuff with deserts right now, so you can you can check out how they do it. Um, we also wanted to call out our friends at D20 Radio. And we wanted to give out a shout out to our patrons. We very much appreciate our patrons who help us with our editing costs. This week we wanted to shout out to Doji Arami and Kayu Yuki, who both are supporting us. And we couldn't do it without you. So thank you very much. Thank you so very much. As stated, our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon that supports our editing costs for the podcast. It also supports our website hosting costs, and that is where you can find long-term information. We've got articles on role-playing games, we've got forums, we've got summaries of our podcasts, and a whole bunch more. And for our patrons, we've got special bonus content like Adventure Seeds and early access to our actual play podcasts and more. Online, you can find us at our website, courtgamespod.com. On Twitter, we are twitter.com slash courtgamespod. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. But that's it for us this week. This is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I have been Korvar. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy. Gamers Row.